Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Well, believe it or not, it actually is possible to have best of moments in the year 2020. Want proof? Stick around. It's a bonus episode of the TreeCast with Troy Clarity presented by the Believe Podcast Network and glad that you are here for it. Wednesday, December 30th, 2020. We are about to put this year to bed. Thank God. And move on to a whole new year full of, well, hopefully still a lot of uncertainty here at the start, but hopefully a lot of better things as uh, we go along. And uh, even though we are on hiatus on the TreeCast, we're looking forward to coming back at you in the new year. But in the meantime, I've got something to tide you over. Oh, by the way, uh, I'm Troy Clarity. Thanks for checking us out on the show and being with us. Uh, you can check me out on Twitter, at Troy Clarity, last misspelled C-L-A-R-D-Y. And I always welcome your thoughts on Stanford Athletics, Stanford football, or anything else that's on your mind. The best way to do that is also via Twitter. Give me the hashtag TreeCast. If you've never heard the show before, what we do is we cover Stanford sports better than anyone in the podcast space. I, I know I'm biased on this, but I, I certainly believe that to be true and uh, could not do it without, uh, without those of you who have listened and supported the show, subscribed to the show, rated and reviewed the show, told everyone you know about the program, and without a lot of the special guests uh, that joined us over the past few months since we latched on to the Believe Podcast Network. So if you're a fan of Stanford sports, then you, my friend, have come to the right place. And we're going to revisit some of the great moments that we have had on the TreeCast in the year 2020. But first, this bit of business. NBA, college basketball are back in the NFL. Playoffs are right around the corner. College football playoffs, too. With all these sports going on, there are plenty of bets to lock in. So if you're thinking about picking the Lakers to repeat their NBA championship or someone to upset Pat Mahomes and the Chiefs, you need to go to betonline.ag. Game spreads and totals to team player and coaching props. BetOnline gives you more options to wager than any place online. And there's always the online casino. It never closes. So head to betonline.ag today and take up a, take advantage of all the great sign-up bonuses. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. Bet online, your online sportsbook experts. Back to the matter at hand and the TreeCast. If you're new to the program, if you if you're looking for hot takes and rants, well, this isn't your show. But I do try to give it to you straight. I, I do try to be as honest as I can about things at all times. And above all, I try to have a little fun with it all, man. I mean, this is sports. It's sports for crying out loud. It shouldn't be depressing, right? I mean, there's 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 plenty of depressing stuff out there to be had, and I hope that the TreeCast hasn't necessarily been, been on that list for you. Uh, we've been doing this show overall since the 2015 Stanford football season, the one that ended up in the Rose Bowl. That was a lot of fun. But we joined the Believe Podcast Network back in February, and our first episode posted on March 9th. Figured we'd focus on football like we had been doing the previous uh, four seasons uh, of the show. We'd run through spring ball, and then we'd take summer off and then pick up, pick up the show back for fall. Well, that was the plan, but as you know, 2020 went full 2020. 
So we had to shift the focus of the show. We shifted the subject matter. We broadened the scope of the show. And, and, and somehow we ended up going through every single week through the start of the pandemic, uh, through the summer, through the cancellation and the revival of the football season, through the darkest day in, in my 28 years of covering Stanford sports, the cutting of uh, 11 varsity programs, uh, through a contentious election, through a lot of unknowns, and eventually, hey, how about this, through actual real live football. And the result, I hope, was some of the best content that this show has ever done since it first came on the scene in 2015. And look, this was a rotten year in a lot of respects, but but I think this was the TreeCast's best year yet. A lot of things intersected this year. And while some folks would prefer not to mix sports with, quote unquote, the real world, um, that's just that just wasn't possible this year. I mean, it's tricky even in normal circumstances sometimes, but that was just impossible this year. That being said, I wanted to bring you and spend a few moments and, and, and bring you some clips of some of my favorite interviews this year. You know, we do the analysis, you know, we break down games, we tell you what's happening around Stanford sports, we give you three things you need to know. Uh, we go stock up, stock down during the football season. But, but I, I really think that part of the hallmark of this show and what the TreeCast has become has been the special guests uh, that join us generally every single episode, and at least the different voices that you hear on every single episode. And I got six different uh, clips I want to revisit here for you. And we're going to start with Stanford wide receiver Simi Fajoko, who declared for the NFL draft on Monday of this week. Congratulations to him. And Simi joined us on the July 22nd episode of the TreeCast. And before all heck broke loose, the last time that the team had been together had been on March 6th. I remember being at practice that day, and after practice was done, it was the middle of, of Sanford's spring session, David Shaw gathered everyone around and basically told the team, hey, look, this coronavirus, this, this, might, take a turn for this, this might take a turn sideways here. Uh, there's a good chance we might not even be on campus this time next week. Be prepared for anything. Well, we all know what happened after that. Well, I asked Simi what he remembered about that day and and what he had been up to in the four and a half months since. That was the that was the last day I was actually uh, actually yeah pretty much the last day I was on campus. The next day I, I caught a flight home and I and I came home and and started hanging out with the family. I actually I got married on March twenty first, yeah. so that was that was big. Um, so I was able to spend a lot of time at home, which was which was good. Um, COVID shut down the honeymoon plans, but. It's all good. We just stayed in Utah, um, had fun. But a lot of the – actually, a lot, Utah was a lot faster on reopening and, and stuff like that. So I was able to have access to, you know, personal trainers, gyms, et cetera. So, I mean, it was a little better than some of the Cali guys. They All their stuff got shut down and everything. So it's been – it was actually pretty good at, at home. I was living the life, hanging out, eating mom's cooking, wife's <laughs> cooking. You know, it was, it was pretty good. It was, it, was a, it was living the dream and, you know – but obviously, I was I was itching to come back and, and start playing football with all my guys. So um, I'm just I'm just glad that we're back out here. Um, I enjoyed the time home and, and and quarantine and all that. But you know, I'm ready to ready to get to work. 
Yeah, we've seen some folks have to resort to some fairly unconventional training measures as they try to cope without having access to gym rooms, having access to weights and things like that. Uh, did, did you have to you do anything unusual to make sure that you were still uh, doing what you needed to do from a physical standpoint? Fortunately, I, I was, you know, blessed with, with some weights and gyms and, and stuff like that. So I, I didn't have to do that, you know, but I was looking at some of the other guys on the team. Houston Haymuli was, you know, carrying rocks from outside, putting them in bags, weighing them, you know, <laughs> trying to bench the bag. It's, it's, it's funny, but, um, you know, I was, I was definitely blessed. Yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of Rocky IV all of a sudden when Rocky's in <laughs> Russia training for Drago exactly. and lifting rocks and pulling horses up out of snowbanks and, and, and things like that. Uh, and, and as you mentioned, in the middle of all this, oh, by the way, you got married. Um, how, you were planning for the wedding in late March. That obviously went off. But, but what was it like having that in the back of your mind as well? And, and obviously, I'd imagine things turned out pretty well. But, but what was it like trying to get that off, on, on, on having to deal with that on your plate as well? Yeah, obviously, we, we wanted to have the wedding, you know, and, and I had a bunch of the guys on the team planning on coming out, you know, a lot of the guys in the, in the wedding line and um, being groomsmen and all that. But um, so obviously, it was like, the week of it was sort of like everything started shutting down and I was like, dang, we probably, so we put out a, we put out a thing saying, you know what, just for, for everyone's safety and health, you know, we're, we're going to plan on still getting married, just us two, but we're going to postpone, you know, the reception, the party and, you know, the gatherings and all that. And so that was, it was, it was hard, you know, I mean, I wanted my guys to come out, all the, all the dudes on the team, see all them, you know, show them around Utah and all that. But I mean, it, 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 it is what it is. And, you know, I think we, we tried to take the best precautions and um, we, I think we did what we did um, and it was, it was right for us. Yeah. So, I mean, it, it worked, it worked out in the end. So we're both married. We're happily married and it's, it's, it's good. You're six foot four, you're 220 pounds. You run a sub four, four forty. David Shaw says that, look, uh, you're, you're, you're too big and you're, and you're too fast. And you made Bruce Feldman's freaks list. <laughs> What's it like being a freak? Oh, uh, you know, I just feel a little normal. And uh, no, um I actually didn't uh, I didn't actually get to read that thing. I saw it on on Twitter, but it, it it was like all blocked off and stuff. But I you know, it's it's obviously an honor to be, you know, even mentioned on a list with a bunch of guys like that, you know. Um, you know, I don't consider myself a freak. <laughs> I just, you know, consider myself a ball player and, and you know, I just love to do what I do. Um and so, you know, it's, it's been cool. It's been cool. Yeah, Obviously, there's a bunch, of, a bunch of guys on the team that are, are freaks just as much as me. So, <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's cool. Yeah. Uh, who was it? Uh, was it? Um, oh, shoot. Was it Austin Jones? I believe Mike Wilson said that he had natural wiggle, I, I believe last year. So certainly that is that, that that's quite freakish. I think that would, that would certainly qualify. Um, <laughs> what excites you most about what this offense can do? I think with us being as young as we are and as experienced as we are, I think our, we're going to surprise a lot of people. I think the fact that, you know, you just mentioned Austin Jones being a freak, you know, Nate Pete, both these guys are young, you know, adding EJ Smith to the mix. And, you know, we have a vet, you know, Dorian Maddox. These guys are, you know, freaks in the run game. And then you look at our pass game, we have Davis Mills, who I could see him potentially winning the Heisman, given the fact, you know, we, we have a good year. Um, and then you have Mike Wilson, Bryce Tremaine, Connor Weddington, Osiris, you know, with, with Elijah on top of that. It's just our game, we're not limited. You know, last year I felt like we were a little limited in terms of, you know, we, we passed to open the run. This year I think we can run to open the pass. 
and you know we can we can just spread it around I think with all the playmakers we have and the experience that we have on the O-line, I think we're going to be really good. Yeah, and we saw a lot of those things from the Stanford offense, especially as the season went along. And, you know, there were times when when Stanford offensively looked unstoppable. And really, really this season for Stanford football kind of went about how I thought it would, with, with the offense looking terrific at times and scoring points and the defense kind of holding on for dear life. But... Simi Fajoko, a key member, especially as the season went along, he asserted himself, uh, especially with the leadership after wide receivers Michael Wilson and Connor Weddington both went down during the Washington game. Simi really stepped up from there, and and I, he's got the measurables. You heard them: six foot four, two hundred twenty pounds, can run a sub four four forty. Uh, he's got the measurables. Uh, and I think if, if, there, if there is a scouting combine this year, no word on that yet, as I say this, but if he's able to work out for scouts, he's going to show him a lot. He's going to certainly be a, a, a big hit when it comes to the stats. Now, can he improve sideline awareness? Because there have been more than a few occasions, both this year and last year, where you know he'd make catches near the sideline and his first foot would fall out of bounds. So that's certainly something that 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 he would, I'm sure, like to work on in the months ahead as he gets ready for the NFL. And of course, becoming a more complete and consistent receiver along the way. I mean, he had that 16 catch 230 yard uh, performance against UCLA, but he also had a couple of drops along the way, some pretty easy balls that I'm sure that he would like to have back. So uh, Simi, I think his future could be very, very bright on the next level. I'm glad we could catch up with him back in, back in July. And normally, you know, we would do more one-on-ones with student-athletes uh, as we had in the previous few years because I, I quite honestly don't necessarily think that we hear enough from the Stanford student-athletes in their own voices. This year, of course, being what it was, access was a bit limited. So uh, when you heard Stanford student-athletes more often than not on this show, it was in uh, group media sessions and group interviews. So normally we would come at you with more one-on-ones with student-athletes and hopefully we uh, hope – uh, to uh, make those more of a feature again very, very soon. We certainly talked to plenty, co- plenty of coaches on the TreeCast, and one of them, Stanford women's basketball coach Tara Vanderveer, stopped by with us for an exclusive one-on-one chat. Tara, of course, the longtime head coach of Stanford women's basketball, and recently she became women's college basketball's all-time winning as coach with win number 1099 and the first coach to win 1,100 games in Division I women's college basketball. Coach caught up with us on September the 3rd, and before the season, I asked her how the pandemic had challenged her as a head coach in ways that she maybe hadn't been challenged before. First of all, you know, when we left everybody in March, you know, there was like a, a maybe a two-week, two- or three-week uh time frame where you're just like is this real you know and then you know you thought well maybe it was going to be quick and people would be back for spring break and then when it became evident that that was not going to happen uh we've been doing weekly zooms with our team we've had guest speakers on our zooms people like neko gumake chineo gumake Roz gold on uh, we had katie ledecky and simone manuel last uh two weeks ago um or last week i'm sorry and uh, it was, um, you know, it, we just had to be creative. Uh, we did our, our end of year banquet on Zoom. Um, you know, just, uh, you know, really, uh, we had different guests during the whole uh, situation, you know, that, 
happened, you know, in, in May with uh, George Floyd incident with um, Black Lives Matter. We've had discussions on Zoom, uh, you know, social justice, uh, voting. Uh, we've shared uh, podcasts, uh, books, movies, um, you know, articles, uh, any, anything I think to just um, keep our team tight. And I think that throughout the, the pandemic, um, there's been a lot of communication between the coaches and players. Uh, players have done small groups. They've been just fantastic at, you know, trying to figure out ways that they could grow as a team when you can't be on the court. What do you love most about what you do? Oh, wow, Troy. I, I think a lot of it is helping players and teams take them places they can't get by themselves, you know, with, with our coaching staff and, you know, just um, the improvement that I see with our team. Um, just trying to play basketball, I guess, a way that, uh, you know, unselfish basketball, team basketball. Uh, I like up-tempo basketball, um, you know, where you're really, um, it's, it's just such a beautiful sport and to play it in a beautiful team way. Um, and, and just to see people happy, you know, with how much they improve, how much they love playing with each other. Um, you know, it's just, uh, you know, the fun is, I say it beats working for a living, Troy. <laughs> How would you measure how far women's basketball has come as a sport over the past 10 to 15 years or so? Well, I think that uh, Pac-12 Networks has been a big part of the um, development and the promotion of uh, basketball on the West Coast, which, you know, uh, it, I think that's been a major factor in, in elevating our game. Uh, the WNBA, uh, I think this year in the, in the wobble, so they, you know, they say has gotten a great coverage and um, you know, there's uh, you know, we're, we're a young sport, you know, I mean, professional basketball is what 25 years old uh, in, for women. Um, so, you know, it's uh, it, it, we're going, we're still taking some baby steps, but um, the support of the sport by fans um, you know, the turnout from Ma at Maples, the turnout in Arizona, uh, everywhere we go, I mean, the, the Pac-12 tournament, there were people, I was just sitting you know, on the side waiting for our team to play and talking to fans, and they're just like, yeah, we know it's just great basketball. We drove up from Texas for the Pac-12 tournament to Vegas. Um, so it's, it's really catching on, I think, all over the country in a really positive way. And certainly a fantastic uh, product as well. And, and, and certainly, you know, uh, leading the way off the court as well with this, with things being the way they are in, in, in this day and age, obviously. And, and, and there's no question that some of your former players have really helped carry the torch in that respect. You mentioned the Ogumike sisters um, earlier in, in the chat. They're taking over the world, and I'm here for it. Um, Rosalind gold Onwade, she's done fantastic things in the media side. Kate Starbird, from my era, the work that she's done in disinformation has been, right. has been fantastic fantastic what, what do you make of some of your former players and helping to be at the forefront of some of the ways that we've seen um, women's basketball lead the way off the court well Troy you know obviously you've done your homework on on, on, on women's basketball and, and the Stanford players uh, look at uh, Amy Westerfeld Brooks who's uh, probably the top woman in the NBA uh, you've got Bethany Donovan with the WNBA Christy Hedgepath uh, the top uh, top women in the WNBA and the NBA are from Stanford. Uh, Jamila Weidman, uh, look at uh, Sonia Henning, one of the top uh, attorneys and uh, um, vice presidents, or I'm not sure the official title, but uh, you know, executives at Nike. 
Um, so uh, the Stanford women, uh, Kay Starbert, a professor at uh, UW, um, you know, the, the women I've coached are just, um, they're in incredibly talented and incredibly motivated and they, they leave Stanford with a lot of confidence. Um, Jane Appel is part of the, you know, Players Association. Um, it's, um, a, a lot of them are, are very active in basketball, but other, other things too, and uh, giving back to uh, Stanford. So, uh, and giving back to women's basketball. It's great. The impact that Tara Vanderveer has had, not just on the court, but off of it, has been undeniable. And the impact that her players are making on the court and in the world is truly incredible. And I'm here for it. It's awesome to see what those young ladies have been doing, both on the court and, and in the real world. She named a bunch of them. And, you know, Kate Starbird, of course, uh, with, with her great work up at the University of Washington and in disinformation, follow her on, follow her on Twitter. I, I think she's as, as, as important a follow as you can possibly have in this day and age. Uh, she mentioned Jamila Weidman, who was in my era at Stanford. Uh, Chinea Gumike is becoming a media star. Rosgo Roz Wude is, is also there, too. Uh, just so many of her former players doing big things out in the world right now. And it's, it's great to see. It's great to see. And look, you know, I've said it before and I'll say it again right here. There are so many great coaches at Stanford, but there's one who sits at the head of the table. And I think if you get all the, all the head coaches and the assistant coaches at Stanford all in one room and they got to pick one person to be their voice, I'm pretty sure they would pick Tara Vanderveer because her voice would uh, certainly speak the loudest and rightfully so. Congratulations to her on her big accomplishments and looking forward to seeing what the number one Stanford Cardinal can do for the remainder of the season. Uh, my era at Stanford, as you may have just heard me reference there briefly, was in the mid-90s. Uh, I graduated from Stanford in 1997, saw a lot of fantastic things uh, on the farm. And one of my favorite things was being a part of Stanford baseball in the mid-90s. Man, I spent a lot of time at Sunken Diamond both as the uh, public address announcer at Sunken Diamond for two years and then calling uh, Stanford Baseball as its lead voice on KZSU uh, for the 1999 se for 1997 season. rather. And one guy I saw a lot of was Kyle Peterson, one of the all-time greats for Stanford Baseball, an All-American pitcher at Stanford, and currently you see him quite often on ESPN as one of their baseball analysts. Awesome to see his career blossom in that respect. And uh, he's probably the unofficial mayor of Omaha, <laughs> which, which certainly comes in handy around College World Series time. And he was big in Omaha even when Stanford would go back to the College World Series in the mid-'90s. It, like, it was like Michael Jordan stepping off the bus back in the day. Well, Kyle now still lives in Omaha, where he is originally from. And I caught up with him on March 26th. So this was early in the whole pandemic and uh, the whole lifestyle, the whole lockdown lifestyle of sorts. And Kyle joined me in late March and I asked him what memories pop out to him about his fantastic and superb Stanford experience. You know, the, the one thing, if there's, and there has to be some positives that we glean out of this time, but it gives us all more time. And <laughs> last weekend, some of that time was spent, um, cleaning out storage rooms and going through stuff that I hadn't looked at in years. And a lot of that stuff was back to those years. And my parents keep everything. Uh, I can promise you that I have 
audio tapes of you calling our games because oh, I boy. ran across a massive rack of them <laughs> over the course of the weekend. And it was all the newspaper stories and the, the memories that start flowing back and the pictures that you haven't seen. And um, it really, I hadn't thought about it all that much until I got through it. And, and then you start reading some of them and it takes you back to that time. There was a picture that ran in the Omaha paper of us dogpiling in, uh, in Wichita in 95, my freshman year, after we came back and, and we had to come back through the loser's bracket and beat Texas Tech to go to Omaha my freshman year. Um, there was a picture that I had never seen, at least I couldn't remember, that was after the final out of the 97 regional that was at Stanford of me and Schaefer jumping into each other's arms halfway between the mound and home plate. Um, and immediately it takes you back to that. And I called Schaefer that night because I hadn't talked to him in a few months just to check in and see how he was doing. So it's the memories that come out of it. I mean, clearly the game component is, is a big part of it, but it's, it's what it took to get there. Um, it was the reaction that I saw from my family and my friends. And, you know, I had, we played our high school state tournament at Rosenblatt. So I had played on the field, but the year before we had got beat in the high school semifinals. I got beat in the high school semifinals. And then the next year we're, we're pitching against Clemson, trying to stay alive in the College World Series in 95. So it just – it was all of that stuff that comes flooding back, and it's amazing what a few pictures can do um, because the memory comes back so clear and just the sounds and what people were saying at that time. Uh, they're, they're great memories, man. And, and um, you know, I had hoped that it wasn't something – you always hope that it's not a negative that takes you back to times like that, but uh, it still was pretty darn cool to think about. I will always remember your demeanor on the mound. Take me through your, your, your mental and your psychological preparation that you took with you uh, onto the mound. Um, I'm not, I'd like to think that in life I'm a fairly patient person and, and, and really pretty laid back. And that didn't work for me when I played. I had to get as mad as I possibly could before games. And, and it's a little bit out of character, but ultimately it, 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 it's where I had to be. And I, I don't know when I realized that or if I even realized it, but I knew that when I, when I focused the most is when that would take place. And, and so for that time frame, whenever it was, I was not a pleasant human to be around. And a lot of times it started at the beginning of the day and it didn't end until until the game was over. And then after that, I, I hopefully could go back to a fairly normal personality, but um, I, I had to operate that way. Other people can operate very differently, but if I wasn't mad and, and I had to find something to be mad at, and it may be somebody on the other team or whatever. Um, and I heard everything and I'm not sure that that was necessarily a good thing either. And, and as we all know, in college, the dugouts can get pretty chirpy and I loved it. I love going on the road. Um, I, I love going on the road into environments that, that people would get on you and other teams would, would chirp because I think one of the greatest things that I miss the most is just competing. And it didn't mean you're going to win all the time, but the, the opportunity to be out there and compete against somebody else um, and against, at the time, some of the best in the entire country. So I, I, everybody's got a different way of doing it for whatever reason. That, that was the way that I had to. Well, you're in your last game in a Stanford uniform. I'll, I'll never forget this 1997 College World Series against that 
that LSU squad that was just a murderer's row from top yeah. to bottom. I think all their dudes had like at least 30 home runs, it seemed, uh, yeah. from the top to bottom of their lineup. But, you know, if I remember right, you came in in relief in the fourth inning or so and, and went for much of the rest of the way at the very least. Uh, Stanford was able to come back, make a game, but LSU eventually went out to a 13-9 to win and advanced – uh, to the uh, LSU uh, or at least to advance to the, to the championship uh, that year. But I, in some ways, I, I kind of think, you know, think about it now, you were Madison Bumgarner in a sense before Madison Bumgarner, what he did in game seven of the World Series a few years ago. What, what do you remember about, about that game in particular and about that, well, that experience in, 19, in, in the 97 College World Series? One of the differences, Madison won. True. And yeah. I didn't. So <laughs> there, was a, there was a different outcome. But – I vividly remember being in the bullpen, uh, and the bullpens were on the field at that time. They were down the we were in the in the uh, first base dugout, and they were down the right field line. And I hadn't had that feeling. I mean, I think in my entire collegiate career, I think I had only come out of the bullpen two other times, and I hadn't done it in a few years. But I, I remember hitting nine, and and whoever would listen to me, Coach Dunton starts before the game saying, "I'm ready, I'm ready, I'm ready," and you know, I have my spikes on at nine in the morning um, just because it's the draft had already happened. I mean, I got drafted on the field when we were playing Auburn. Uh, I believe it was the game before that. And yep. so I knew there was a pretty good chance that I wasn't coming back. And so I also knew that <clears throat> when you get into that loser's bracket, obviously um, that may be the last time you ever put the uniform on that uniform. And so um the outcome wasn't exactly what I wanted, but the, 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 in that bullpen, I felt like, I felt like I was thrown as hard as I ever thrown in my life. I felt like I was the, the mentality when you come out of the bullpen sometimes is so different than when you start a game because the bell rings and you got to go. You don't necessarily know exactly when the bell's going to ring. Um, and you know, I, I know that, that if I go back and look at the numbers and I can't remember specifically, but I know they weren't exactly great. Um, but I'll never forget the moment. And I'll never forget the moment in right field after the game when we got beat. And Coach Dunn brought all the pitching staff together as he did after every game. Um, and I lost it. I absolutely broke down on the field at Rosenblatt because I knew that was it. And, I mean, my pro career was, was nothing to write home about. <clears throat> but even if it had been, nothing could recreate those three years. It just couldn't. Because, um, especially in the minor leagues, and when I got to Milwaukee, you know, I wasn't there very long, but we, we weren't great. But in college, you, you, you play for one thing. And, yeah, I mean, you want to be the guy that's out there, but there's just a – and I think this is true at most places, but I know it was true at our place. It was such a, uh, it was such a unified goal, and, and you did whatever you needed to do to win. And when the reality hits that you're not going to get a chance to do that anymore and there's not a damn thing you can do about it, it sucks. It's a life reality. It's a sports reality. They take the jersey away from you at some point. You just hope it's as long as, as it can possibly be. But that day, warming up in the bullpen, the feeling on the mound, and ultimately what it was like after the game in right field, I'll never, ever forget. And I don't want to forget them. Um, I'll never forget what that felt like. Yeah, I'll, I'll never forget that day myself with old Rosenblatt Stadium in Omaha. God, God I love watching Kyle Peterson pitch. I loved watching him pitch. And I really appreciate him joining us and and giving us such thoughtful stuff. And I think that interview really helped push the show 
into the direction that it ended up taking for the next seven months, where we, you know, by you know, kind of, you know, not by design and by, you know, by by necessity, because let's face it, no one was on the field, so we had to have content some other way. So we focused more on the special guests. We focused more on the interviews. And, and Kyle's interview, our, our, our chat with him in late March as we were all early in this process, um, really helped steer the show in the direction that it ended up taking uh, throughout the remainder of the spring, into the summer, and into the early fall before football season began. So I, I really wanted to be sure uh, to bring that interview back in case you did not hear it the first time around. One of the other athletes I really loved watching during my time at Stanford, Brevin Knight. One of the Stanford men's basketball all-time greats. He joined us on the May 26th episode of the show. Someone else joined us on the May 26th episode of the TreeCast. You're going to hear a clip from that uh, coming up a bit later on uh, in this episode. But when Brevin and I caught up in May, he was quarantining in Martha's Vineyard. Not bad. And uh, now he's the TV analyst for Memphis, Memphis Grizzlies broadcasts. And uh, he, hosts, he hosts a podcast of his own called Night Court. I love that. That's incredible. Well, when Brevin joined the show, I asked him what he brought to Stanford men's basketball that maybe it hadn't had before. I think it was just a, it was a level of swagger that, we, that, is, that was not synonymous with Stanford basketball. And I think that Stanford basketball was, was going to be good kids, come from great backgrounds, going to play the game the right way. They're going to execute their plays. And they, they might just not have the talent to get over the hump. I think what I brought was it was an edge. We didn't have an edge at Stanford, I don't think. And I, I think that's what, that's what came with me was an edge, and, but an edge that had to be polished to make sure that it fit the group of guys that we had. And, and so I think they, once they, they saw that all of what I did was to make us be better, and it's kind of like everyone got on board with it. And, and when, you can, when you can win over guys at the point position and you can get people to play a little bit above their heads or at least be on a consistent basis, then you give yourself a chance to win. And that's all I wanted to empower my guys to believe was that you can do it, and we need you to play your role if we're going to be good. And I think that when you let everyone have a hand in it, but then your main guys still play their role, then that means that, that everybody feels as though the team goes as they go. Now, your ascent surprised a lot of folks, including Mike Montgomery himself, apparently. Were you surprised by how your career started and how – how, how upward the trajectory was for you uh, by the end of it all. Were you surprised by how things went for you? Uh, I, I, was, I was surprised by the outcomes. Um, I, I wasn't surprised at the play. Like it was, my, my play got better between, after my freshman year and a lot of that had to do with, I had never worked out in basketball in my entire life until I got to Stanford. I just played basketball every year. We grew up growing up in New Jersey. We go to the park every day, and, and that's where you hone your skill. You learn what you can and can't do on the floor. And so it wasn't individual workouts. I, I loathe doing individual workouts. After we played, Jason Kidd came up to me after the game and told me that I think you got a chance to be a pro. And I never, no one ever told me that I had a chance to be a pro. They always told me you're a good basketball player. You got a chance to play in college. 
but never to be a pro. And so it was never a goal of mine to be a professional basketball player. It was a dream, but not a goal. After I had that talk with him and after my freshman year, it was the first summer that I worked out. Myself and Keith Larson, my assistant coach, I went home for a month or so and I went back to Stanford and we worked on my basketball game to the point where I learned how to shoot. I didn't even know how to shoot when I got to college. Shot the ball from the left side of my head is how I would shoot jump shot. Never took threes. It was just, it was on just sheer quickness and my knowledge of basketball that I was able to be effective on the floor. But he taught, we went and he taught me and we worked on all of the finer points. Um, and so after that summer, when I went back for my sophomore year, that's when I felt like, oh, I could be a pro. Number one, I've worked at this, but I've also had the best tell me that I could be a pro, which was Jason Kidd. And so uh, I always give him a lot of credit for giving me that last little push that I needed to become a pro basketball player. Certainly some great guards uh, during that era of, of Pac-10 basketball yourself. You got my butt kicked. Damon Stoudemire. Yep. You can talk about every great point guard there was in the Pac-10. Now, yeah, I say the Pac-10. Damon Stoudemire was yeah. the only guard that I would have worries about the night before playing. The only one. And I'm talking about from Tyus Edney to Jason Kidd. Um, we can go, you go down the line of people who, we, who I played, Kenya Wilkins at mm -hmm. Oregon. Mm -hmm. There's a line of people that, I, that were great point guards, but there was only one that had my attention on, at its highest, and that was, that was Damon Stein. Only person that scored 40 against me in my career. What comes to your mind when I say the following two numbers? This, this is a set of numbers, 109 to 61. What comes to mind UCLA. for you? UCLA. Maples mm -hmm. Pavilion, yep. it, it was magical, is what I tell people. It was one of those nights where we came in with, we wanted to prove that we belonged on the floor with every big name team in the Pac-10, that Stanford had arrived. And we were, we were as big as anyone else. And we knew that the only way that you get to that point is you got to beat the big dogs. You, you have to, in some way, put yourself on that level. And, and that night, it was like the basket was as big as the ocean. And usually that happens for one person. You get one person that's hot. But we had a team. And, and it, it was – the building was rocking. And we uh, – first time that I could say, like, we demoralized UCLA. I mean, you could see the life just leave them during that game. And it was – we just continue to pour it on. So that, that's one that you can say those two numbers and nothing but a big smile will come across <laughs> my face. Your career at Stanford ended with Stanford making a sweet 16. Uh, another fantastic game. Went to overtime. Stanford didn't come away with it. I was at the San Jose Arena that night, and I remember walking out of the building going, wow, that was the ultimate. How could Stanford possibly top this? The next year they go to a Final Four, and over the next eight years or so, they have two more teams that probably should have gone uh, to the Final Four. But what, as you watched Stanford do what it did and have the success that it did, the amazing success that it did um, after you set the tone, what sort of things went through your mind as you watched Stanford uh, really make its true ascent um, from afar? I felt like I was a part of it. You know, and even though I, I physically wasn't there, 
for the Final Four run. Those are all my guys. Those are all my youngsters, you know, and I felt like I did my job because my job was to get the program going in the right direction. But it was also to leave the program in a great place. It wasn't just to get there for my four years and say, be happy with the fact that we have gone to bigger heights than any other Stanford basketball team has gone to at any time. It was, I wanted to see them become a Final Four team. I wanted to see us become a perennial Sweet 16 team. And to sit back and say that you had a hand in getting that started, that, that, was, that, was, that was enough for me. And, and I didn't need the, the best this or the best that. I just needed to see that every year I'm able to pick Stanford in the NCAA bracket. And that was something that if you say back in 92, before I got, even in 93 when I got there, nobody would have been talking about Stanford being a Final Four team. I don't even think we get the players that we got after that time if we weren't as good as we were from 93, 94 to 97. I thought that, the, and it's not just Brevin Knight, the list goes down. Everyone that played on every one of those Stanford teams, we should all feel good about where Stanford basketball went from there because we created a basketball culture that was not there at all. Uh, and so it's, it's a good feeling. And I, I mean, I, I just want to get back to seeing it on a regular basis that, that we are an NCAA team regularly. And, uh, and, and I see us taking the steps uh, to get back to that. Yeah. And perhaps Stanford is, I mean, certainly a lot of excitement and, and, and a lot to like. Uh, a couple games that have gotten away from Stanford in the early going as uh, they went uh, one and two in that experience at the uh, Maui Invitational in Asheville, North Carolina. But still, cards are still in a position very much to have a bit of a resurgence. Not unlike what Stanford basketball did when Brevin Knight was running the show back in the 90s. And those awesome years when Stanford was a legit Final Four contender those years for Stanford men's basketball don't happen without Brevin Knight. And uh, he's, he still takes some pride. Takes a lot of pride, actually, in how the program fared in his, after his immediate departure. By the way, uh, he demanded to come back on the show. So uh, I said, cool, no problem. <laughs> Brevin, you, anytime you want to come on the TreeCast, my man, you are more than welcome. So Brevin wants to come back on the show. He makes that demand. We will definitely have to oblige. It's been a real hallmark of this show, as you, as many of you know, uh, that, that Stanford football uh, takes center stage and is the number one subject of the TreeCast, and that, that hasn't changed. Even though we've been able to, to spin off into talking about other sports, uh, basketball, uh, soccer, uh, other sports as well, football is still the focal point uh, around which the TreeCast revolves. And we've actually been able to catch up with Stanford football head coach David Shaw for one-on-one -on -one chats on two occasions. Let me take you back to August 19th when uh, Coach Shaw joined us for that edition of the show. And this was right after, right after the Pac-12 pulled the plug on fall sports. That was in mid-August. And, and with that as the backdrop, I asked Shaw what his message was to his team. Well, anticipating some of the, the outside voices and, and some of the things that, that, are, that are swirling around all of college sports, um, I, I first reminded them that there's no us versus them. Um, there's just us. Uh, the only them is the virus. 
Um, we're all on the same page. We all want to play. We all want our young people to play. They've worked so hard. But we told them from the very, very beginning that everything we, be, we do will be dependent on our medical professionals and, and their advice. Um, this is not coaches or administrators really making these decisions. These are all of us listening to the advice of the people that have earned our trust and that do a great job looking out for our student athletes. And if they advise us, hey, you know what, it's good to continue, then we would continue. If they advise us to, to hit the pause button, to wait for more information and to see if we can restart again, then that's what we were going to do. So from that point, it became really an easy decision for all of us. Um, our guys, as much as they were disappointed, they got it. Um, and they appreciated it too because they had a lot of questions. Their parents had a lot of questions. Um, they want to play, but gosh, can we, can we do this? Can we make this happen? Um, because not only, not only do the, obviously the coaches and trainers, and we have higher risk factors than the student athletes. Um, you still have student athletes that have asthma. You still have student athletes that have some, some, some things that, that, that cause you cause concern. And, um, you know, can we, can we do this thing safely for the, for, for, for everybody, not just for the high percentage of them, but for, for everybody. Um, that was the question. Yeah. As a head coach, you're always dealing with, you know, information from different sources, from the student athletes themselves, uh, from the parents, as you just mentioned, from the medical staff, uh, from the athletic department itself. It, that, dealing with that hasn't been new to you because that's part of, that's part of your job. But how had those conversations kind of changed, the tenor of those conversations kind of changed over the last few months when everyone's dealing with this and trying to grapple with this and, and try to figure out the best way forward? Well, I, I would say this, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm better at most than being, uh, at being, at not being reactionary. Um, I'm better at most at staying calm and, and being structured and ordered. I mean, that's, that's my nature. I like to say I, I am a Stanford man, right? So I like, to, I like to have answers for the questions. I have to anticipate the questions. This has been really difficult for all of us because we all have questions and there aren't enough answers to go around. And um, that, that's been the hardest part for me uh, even on top of not being able to work with my guys, um, work with our team, not having answers for them. I mean, that, that's the hardest thing for me um, because, uh, once again, we know how this thing works. These, these parents, they turn them over to, to us for us to take care of them. And if I don't have an answer, um, I, I want to hit the pause button because I like to have answers. I have to say, hey, this is how we do it. This is how we deal with injuries. This is how we deal with that. Um, this is how we try to prepare to, to keep them from being injured. And with this virus, and a lot of people, uh, you know, we, we, we look at this from where we are right now, but if you, if you take the 10,000-foot the view, um, a, a virus, um, granted, this, we haven't been through this in, 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 in the modern days. Um, there have been other ones that have maybe not been as uh, widely spread. But viruses usually, usually take at least a year to figure out, um, let alone come up with, a, with, a, with an anecdote or, or, or a serum of some kind. Um, so we're, we're really about six months into to figuring this thing out. And we still learn something. seems like every week we figure something out. Um, so that, that's helped me understand, like, hey, you know what? We're in a position where nobody really has the answers. Um, we have a lot of people that are trying to find answers. We're finding some answers here and there. Um, but then sometimes we find out three weeks later that that, init that initial answer, oh, that wasn't the answer. That led us to the real answer. So those are things that are, are hard, which, which for me now, we're playing a, store, a sport with student athletes that um, are in our care. And if we don't have great answers and their health is, is even slightly at risk, then we need to operate with caution.
it seems like on a lot of different levels as of right now, uh, college football is at a bit of a crossroads on the field, off the field, how business is done, all sorts of other things um, with, with, it seems like everything is at a crossroads at this point. Um, with the, with specifically with, with this sport, which directions do you hope college football takes from here? That's a great question. Um, so two things for me. Uh, number one, I'm really anxious, excited, all at the same time um, for the name, image, and likeness to really come to fruition. I think it's going to be an absolute game changer. Um, I think it's going to change a lot of people's views on, you know, for those people out there that are just down on amateur athletics, in particular uh, college football and men's basketball. Um, so I, I think that's going to be a huge change. It's going to alleviate a lot of issues. Um, I think it's going to be a big help to, to those people. I just, um, like many people, um, would love some, some uh, help from our, 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 our uh, national um, government um, and not in a way to restrict the student athletes, just in a way to restrict the involvement of the institutions. Um, let's give the young people the freedom that they deserve um, to, to, to engage in society in a way that they can use their name, image, and likeness to make money. Um, I think that's exciting for our, our student athletes. I think that's a great thing. Um, I just think that we should be restricted from using those, those things to recruit, et cetera. <clears throat> so we, I think we can give them their freedom but restrict the, the, the universities. Um, on top of that, you, you would love for the continual push for uniformity. Uh, and I've been on this train for a long time and mm -hmm. people have talked about creating some kind of a, a czar, um, college football czar. I, I don't know about that. A lot of, a lot of uh, commissioners will have issues with somebody from uh, central office telling them what to do. Um, but at the same time, I would love to see more uniformity across how we schedule, um, how we operate, how we redo, handle recruiting, how we interpret NCAA rules. Um, there's a lot of different interpretations out there. So you would love to have a little bit more uniformity in, in some of the ways that we operate. Um, and I'm excited for what name image like this will do for our student athletes. That's David Shaw from the August 19th episode of the TreeCast. And obviously Pac-12 football came back and was able to cobble together a mini season, but just a whole host. And I think you just got a hint of it there. And, and, it, and we didn't, we didn't know how things were going to go during the season. We had no idea that, that Stanford was going to end up being on a three week road trip to close out the season and playing you know, it's three final games, not just on the road, but with the entire operation away from the Stanford campus due to COVID-19. We had no idea about that at that point. But you could get a hint even then of all the different considerations and variables and things that, that David Shaw was dealing with as he, as he was trying to run the program in the midst of a pandemic. And I always, I, I love talking football with David Shaw. And I also appreciate his ability and his willingness to talk big picture stuff too and talk intelligently about it as well. Not every football head coach can do that. I can think of a few off the top of my head. I'll keep that list to myself. One of those things you heard Shaw mention is the name image likeness issue in the NCAA. And that's, that's a neat little segue to the final clip and the final favorite interview I had from this year, as on the May 26th episode of the show, after, or actually this was the first episode that we ran, because Brevin Knight came second. And look, Brevin Knight isn't going to take second billing to many people when it comes to Stanford, but Senator Cory Booker is one of them. 
Uh, Senator Booker joined us on the May 26th episode of the TreeCast, the Democrat from New Jersey in the Stanford class of 1991. And Senator Booker has been at the forefront of reforming the student-athlete experience and, and trying to get legislation passed to, to help make that so, obviously because he has unique experience with it during his days as a Stanford football player and, oh, by the way, as Stanford class president as well. There are things that he likes about the current student-athlete experience, but there are a lot of things that he still think can be, thinks can be improved. College sports is a billion, with a B, billion-dollar business. With that, I asked Senator Booker how all of that money affects the dynamic of what we see today with the student-athlete experience. Well, look, it is, I think that whenever you bring that amount of money into it, um, that the primary people who are on the field doing uh, so much of, of what drives that, that wealth and then for them to live in poverty. I mean, like we know that the scholarship uh, doesn't fully cover all the costs of a student. And so I came from a middle-class family in, in New Jersey. My parents could fly out to see me, send me money. But you and I both know that there are a lot of players that don't come from backgrounds like that. And, and here you have people making billions of dollars. They go and try to sell their jersey. And suddenly the NCAA, no exceptions, they come down on them so hard and, and take away the, the chances that they might be able to one day actually profit and make it to the pros. It's just not, not giving kids, young men, young women, uh, uh, some kind of compensation uh, to me is problematic knowing what I saw uh, folks who came from lower income environments go through hustle just to try to find a dollar to, to to pay for food at night or to pay for travel or clothing or the kind of things that people um, I struggle with. So it, there's a lot of things that make me angry about the way the NCAA rolls. And especially when, you know, I, when I was mayor, we hosted uh, 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 a part of Marsh Madness here in Newark. That's when it really hit me how 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 big this is and how much the NCAA makes and where that money goes and who's really benefiting from it. And just a different standard for the athletes. I mean, even the fact that I was, I was recruited by a, a Spurrier and he switched schools uh, while I was there. He jumped from one college to another and started recruiting me from the other college. And he has the freedom to jump around. But if I'm a student athlete, I can't transfer. Uh, without losing my eligibility, losing a year of eligibility. And I, there's just this, this dis dissonance between the way athletes are treated versus the other professionals that are involved in, in, uh, in NCAA sports. And that's problematic to me. Let's talk about you and, and some, some highlights from your, from your Stanford football career. You mentioned you were recruited by a whole lot of folks, including Notre Dame. Given that, how cool was it to play a, a key role in beating Notre Dame when they were ranked number one that great day in South Bend in October of 1990. What do you remember about that day? Everything. It's one of my great life experiences because I, I did a Notre Dame recruiting trip. Lou Holtz was the coach and it was one of the more, I mean, Lou Holtz is one of the more motivational human beings uh -huh. ever. And like, I tell you, it was, he filled my head with, I still remember walking into the Notre Dame locker room, a 17, 18 year old kid, my jersey's hanging there. Uh, high school jersey, but it's Notre Dame now, my high school number. Lou Holtz is like, take a knee. And I, I don't bow before human beings, but 
whom I was on my knee, and he gave the best locker room speech I'd ever heard at that point, <laughs> I, I, talking about Notre Dame lore. He was, you know, uh, great quarterback, he, he, the Gipper. He even talked about Rudy for crying out loud. And then <laughs> we have to walk out the, the locker room. There's a four leaf clothing right, right before you go down into uh, uh, to the tunnel to go out in the field. And he's like, punch that. I don't care what your background is. I'm a black guy from Jersey, but everybody who touches that suddenly you are Irish. And then we walk out in the tunnel and he's narrating and I'm like catching the pass and he gets me to the far end zone. He's like, turn around, Corey Booker, turn around. And I turn around and there the first thing I see is Jesus Christ on the side of a building, touchdown Jesus. And I knew in all of my life, I knew what God and Jesus wanted from me, which was a score touchdown in that end zone. And so I went home and I think my parents had to call like, psychologists and deprogrammers to get me uh, ultimately back uh, uh, before I, 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 you know, went to, went to go there at, to Notre Dame. And I remember going to Stanford's playbook and seeing that, that, that they would play Notre Dame twice in South Bend, Indiana, uh, during the time that I was there. And uh, I just knew that I could now fulfill my promise to God that I would score a touchdown in the end zone. And so sophomore year when we went out there, I was low on the depth chart. And I have to say, I've asked for God's forgiveness for this because I don't think I've ever prayed more for somebody's injury than I did. I'm like, God, get me on that field, Lord. Don't make it a serious injury. Maybe just pull a hammy. Let me get in that game. And <laughs> year, I, did, I didn't get in the game, uh, for, but for maybe a few plays. And, but then, then it rolled around senior year, Denny Green, and we were going in and I was a player. And, uh, you know, I had, had my best career game in terms of numbers of catches and, uh, and my one breakaway moment where All-American Todd Light came up, mm -hmm. fell for the only fake I had. I really wasn't that complicated of a football player. <laughs> he falls down, and I break forward, and I could see the end zone calling to me. I hear the heavens open up, but then I think I got tackled from behind by a guy named Michael Stonebreaker, if I remember. And he, he like, spawned from hell. He stopped me from fulfilling. But I set up touchdown Tommy, Tommy Vardell for that last uh, that score. <laughs> But it was an extraordinary game, an extraordinary experience. And I still remember Denny Green's sort of lesson to us, God rest his soul, uh, which was, you know, he was kind of blunt. He was like, there's a lot of better athletes than you all on that field, but we're a better team. When people come together, work together, bleed together, sweat together as a team, there's, there's nothing you can't achieve in life. And it's always been an experience I've taken with me in the teams that I build. Now as a United States Senator, trying to find the common ground in, in, across the aisle and remind us that we're one team here in America and we got a competitive global world. But when we stand together, sweat together, work together, share common values, um, uh, we can have great successes together. So it's one of my great life experiences and you're kind to bring it up because the older <laughs> I, the older I get, the better I was. <laughs> Funny how that works, isn't it? It's <laughs> yeah. a great story. That's a, that's a great story. And I really enjoyed chatting with a uh, Senator Booker, um, about what Stanford means to him. And he spoke extremely highly of David Shaw and the program. So much, much more. I mean, we talked from like maybe about a half hour or so. Really difficult to find just like a five, six, seven minute clip to pull from that. Um, but uh, you want to revisit that? I highly recommend that you do so. You want to revisit any of the episodes that we've had. You can do it. Jump into the vault. Listen to the, some of the, the fantastic uh, conversations that we've had uh, since March uh, via your favorite listening app. I highly recommend that you, uh, you do that if you have not had the chance to do so. And what you just heard were just some of the great moments that we've had on the show that we had in 2020. And I would love to thank 
all of the special guests who joined us this year in alphabetical order. R.J. Abadia from TheBootleg.com, Stanford football defensive coordinator Lance Anderson, Senator Cory Booker, former Stanford women's soccer goalkeeper Jane Campbell, Stanford Steve Coughlin from ESPN, Stanford baseball head coach David Esker, Cardinal wide receiver Simi Fajoko, Pat Forty of Sports Illustrated, Rod Gilmore from ESPN, he's a Stanford guy too, Naomi Gurma from Stanford Women's Soccer, one of the stars of that program. And for my money, that was the that was Stanford's team of the 2019-2020 athletic uh, year. Stanford men's soccer head coach Jeremy Gunn, Cardinal men's basketball head coach Jared Haas, the Pac-12 Network's football analyst Anthony Heron, the one and only Brevin Knight, Sirius XM uh, college football analyst, and Washington State Cougar great Ryan Leaf, Stanford alum Aaron Levine, who's currently the uh, sports director at Q13, the Fox affiliate up in Seattle, Pro Football Hall of Famer and Stanford alum James Lofton, Mark Madsen, one of the all-time greats for Stanford men's hoops. He's currently the Utah Valley men's basketball head coach. Ivan Mazel, Stanford alum with ESPN.com. Stuart Mandel of The Athletic, Cardinal wide receiver, former Stanford wide receiver, Evan Moore, one of the best football analysts in the business. You see him on the Pac-12 Network and also on Fox. Colby Parkinson, Stanford NFL draftee and current Seattle Seahawks tight end. Uh, Stanford All-American pitcher Kyle Peterson. John Platts, Cardinal broadcaster. Stanford women's soccer head coach Paul Ratcliffe. CardinalSportsReport.com's Jacob Rayburn. The voice of the Stanford Cardinals, Scott Reese. Pac-12 Network's Ted Robinson. Pac-12 Network's Yogi Roth. Stanford offensive tackle Walter Rouse. Former Stanford center Sam Schwartzstein. Cardinal head coach David Shaw, Phil Steele, the college football guru himself, former Stanford linebacker A.J. Tarpley, Stanford NFL draft D.K.C. Tuhill, legendary women's basketball head coach Tara Vanderveer, one of my favorite players of all time, Troy Walters, the former Stanford receiving great, John Wilner, the San Jose Mercury News, Mike Yam, formerly the Pac-12 Network, and Pac-12 Deputy Commissioner and COO Jamie Zaninovich. All of those folks were our special guests on the TreeCast over the past few months since we started on the Believe Podcast Network on March 9th. And I'm looking forward to what 2021 brings on a lot of different levels. Subscribe to the show. Tell folks about the show. Rate and review the show. And thank you for being a tremendously huge part of the program. Have a safe, happy healthy, and sane new year. All the best from us here on the TreeCast. Don't drink and drive if you do. You're the dumbest person on the planet. Just as dumb as the person who does not wear a mask. Mask it or casket. I don't want to be saying this too deep into 2021. All right? We'll see you next time on the TreeCast when we fire this back up sometime in the new year. Until then, thank you. Happy New Year. We'll talk to you next time on the Tree Camp with Troy Clary, presented by the Believe Podcast Network. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.